The U.S. Supreme Court is blocking the creation of a second-majority black congressional district in the state of Alabama. The ruling strikes a significant blow to voting rights across the state. The high court voted 5-4 to four in favor of a controversial Republican-drawn congressional map. No, it's not controversial. It's unlawful. At least it used to be. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Just before yesterday's broadcast got underway, the U.S. Supreme Court released one of its shadow docket rulings without benefit of oral argument to effectively cut off the landmark Voting Rights Act and its critical protections against racial gerrymandering. Just cut it off at its knees. No, it is not a controversial map that was drawn by Alabama Republicans. It's an unlawful one. At least it used to be unlawful until the activist right-wing judges on the stolen U.S. Supreme Court decided it was okay for them to start legislating from the bench. Well, they've been doing that for a while, those right-wing Republican justices. So, yeah, this is the next step in their decades-long effort to dismantle voting rights. It's happening. Uh, Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. As our friend, uh, legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern tweeted the breaking news yesterday, uh, quote, breaking by a five to four vote with Roberts joining the liberals in dissent. The Supreme Court halts a lower court order that required Alabama to redraw its congressional map, which had diluted black votes in violation of the Voting Rights Act. As Mark noted, this was and is, quote, another major blow to the Voting Rights Act that will likely preserve Alabama's current racist gerrymander, which has consisted of six white Republican seats and one black Democratic seat in the U.S. House over the past 10 years. And their new maps 
drawn following the uh, 2020 census. Again, not controversial, just unlawful, just a violation of the Voting Rights Act, even the parts of the Voting Rights Act that have not yet been killed by this uh, stolen and packed Supreme Court, which, yes, is legislating for activist judges, legislating from the bench. The same thing that Republicans have pretended to be against for Lord knows how many years now. They were never against it. You knew that, right? Anyway, the new maps uh, drawn uh, since the uh, 2020 uh, census continue the racial gerrymander from the past 10 years, but they make it worse given the growth in the black population in Alabama over the past 10 years. As Mark described at Slate in uh, last night in his article, the Alabama housing house redistricting plan, quote, packs a huge number of blacks, uh, black voters, into a single sprawling district that stretches from Birmingham to Montgomery, including as many non-white residents as possible. The few remaining voters of color in the state are then distributed through six majority white districts where they stand no chance of electing their favored candidate. As a result, while black Americans make up 27 percent of Alabama's state population, they control just 14 percent of its congressional delegation. To make that clear, that's one third of the population in Alabama and only 14 percent of the seats that would represent them. This uh, this map, in other words, is a classic racial gerrymander designed to diminish the political power of racial minorities, says Mark. Black residents challenged its legality. And after a thorough trial, a three judge federal court agreed that the map violates Section two of the Voting Rights Act in a meticulous 225 page opinion. Moreover, he notes two of the three judges on the panel were appointed by President Donald Trump, illustrating just how lawless and just how brazen the redistricting plan was. I'm sorry, how controversial it was. Uh, Mark writes, the court found that Alabama had willfully refused to create a second majority black district, instead slicing up minority communities to boost the voting power of white residents. And it ordered ordered the state to redraw its map with another majority black district in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. This is a classic Voting Rights Act case. It's so classic and so easy. And as they described, uh, as the uh, judges described on that three judge panel, not even a close case that. They knew exactly what to do. They ordered up a second map. This time we need a second majority black district to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Predictably, writes Mark, Alabama Republicans appealed to the Supreme Court, asking it to eviscerate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act's safeguards against racial gerrymandering. And sadly... Uh, also, predictably, at this point, the court uh, stayed the lower court's ruling, allowing that racial gerrymander to stay in place, that blatant racial gerrymander that even two Trump judges uh, saw as a blatant, unlawful racial gerrymander. They allowed that to stay in place, likely for at least as long as the 2022 midterms, if not longer, because the court, as Mark writes, also granted cert in this case, and will issue, uh, which means they will hear the case in full 
later this term, teeing up the opportunity, as he writes, to eviscerate the Voting Rights Act's remaining protections for racial minorities against gerrymanders that dilute their voting strength. As he concluded his article at Slate last night, Mark wrote, quote, the Supreme Court's order is not merely partisan. It is a lawless assault on the one remaining provision of the Voting Rights Act protecting black Americans in red states from political oblivion. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, sadly. So uh, what does all this mean now for both Alabama and other states? Because it's not just about Alabama, sadly. This is actually about the Voting Rights Act itself. So what does it mean for Alabama in the uh, months and years ahead, the decade ahead, perhaps several decades ahead at this point, uh, and in other states where racial gerrymanders are being challenged under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. What does this mean for Section 2 and the Voting Rights Act itself? And how does this affect what redistricting experts were otherwise describing as a surprisingly good year for both Democrats and American voters in general when it comes to these new maps across the country following the 2020 census. We'll be joined momentarily with thoughts on all of that by Common Causes National Redistricting Manager Dan Vicuña. Common Cause is one of the parties challenging a number of uh, both partisan and racial gerrymanders in several states right now. So we will learn more about that shortly. Yes. It's interesting when you think about it, the ongoing consequences of the 2016 election that gave Trump the opportunity to install three right wing Supreme Court justices. Yep. Interesting is a nice way to put it, Desi Doyen. Yes, it is very interesting. It is very interesting how all of our longstanding rights, decades of rights when it comes to voting laws, when it comes to abortion rights, civil rights, civil rights are simply being just cut down one after another after another. Are you paying attention yet? Anyway, we'll get to Vicuña on that in a moment. Very quickly, then we spent some time on yesterday's show discussing how the Republican Party is turning on itself how it's eating itself alive in in some respects. You got Donald Trump attacking his own vice president, Mike Pence. You got Pence pushing back at Donald Trump, declaring Donald Trump was wrong for saying that Pence was allowed, lawfully allowed to steal the 2020 election on January 6th. You got the RNC censuring two of its own Congress members, Liz Cheney. And Adam Kinzinger for daring to work with Democrats to probe the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol in more than 200 years. So they're eating themselves alive, even as Joe Biden and the Democrats economy is now booming with unprecedented job creation last year. No other American president even comes close. 6.6 million new jobs added last year. Donald Trump doesn't come anywhere close. Ronald Reagan doesn't come anywhere close. And new jobs, uh, jobs numbers from last month coming in, coming in at an unexpectedly high 467,000 new jobs added. And that's before they are revised, as has been the case month after month. And yet... With all of that, for some reason, Democrats are expected to get trounced in this year's midterms? Maybe. But why? Why is that so? Why is the why does the corporate media? Why are they certain 
that that is going to happen. It may well happen, and I would say one reason that I argued on yesterday's show is the terrible and, yes, biased job that the corporate media is doing in covering all of these things, especially the economy, where month after month they have reported on, quote, disappointing monthly job numbers, even in months, by the way, when they were higher than those uh, during the Trump era, which the media at that point described as, quote, robust or an economy that was booming or on rocket fuel. Joe Biden brings in higher uh, jobs numbers and they're disappointing. And that, even though the Bureau of Labor Statistics every single month over the past year has upwardly revised previous month's job numbers by at least 100,000 every single month, because clearly their method for tracking these numbers has sort of been broken by the pandemic or something. So just to give you an idea of just how off initially reported numbers have been, I, you know, they've been off by they've been low, too low by more than 100,000 in every single month over the past year. But I didn't get time to, to mention these uh, hard numbers yesterday, numbers that the corporate media, you know, have been constantly reporting as disappointing and a bad sign for Biden's economic plan, etc. So 467,000 new jobs were said to have been created in January, which were high enough that the media couldn't avoid it. And they, you know, surprisingly uh, large numbers. But in last Friday's report on this from the Labor Department, uh, they also revised the November and the December numbers, and they revised those upward f for November, for example, which was initially reported, quote, as disappointing at 199,000 jobs, sad trombone. In fact, in November, there were 510,000 new jobs. It was not even close. It was more than twice what was originally reported by the Labor Department. And did you hear about that? Probably not. Uh, and it's listen, it's not the you know media's uh, fault that the Labor Department got it wrong because their method for tracking this seems to have gotten broken with the pandemic. But the media knew by November of last year and December of last year that those numbers keep getting revised up each month, apparently by huge numbers. The job gains revisions for December that were announced last Friday. Did you hear about these? They went from a disappointing 249,000 jobs in December to 647,000 new jobs in December. Well, that paints a much stronger picture of the labor market than uh, either expected or that the uh, media have been reporting on. But those, you know, the revisions are too late for the media to make much of them, I guess. The damage is done in November and December with all of those disappointing job numbers. Joe, Joe Biden's uh, in real trouble. His economy is not working out. His approval ratings keep going down with each of these new monthly numbers that come out, even though those same numbers would be upwardly revised later. It is kind of maddening. Now, if I knew that that would be the case, if I knew that those numbers were going to be revised up, with all of the tremendous resources we have here at Bradblog World <laughs> News Headquarters, how, how can it be that the corporate media was unable to make those points clear in their initial reporting? Not to mention their downplaying of the lowest unemployment rates in decades, the highest growth in GDP since 1984, etc. 
Uh, but sure, other than that, the media, they are totally liberal. They're totally in the bag for Democrats and Joe Biden. Anyway, you know, I've got some other points to get off my chest, but I don't have time right now. <laughs> They'll have to wait for later. Uh, I got my guest standing by to try and help us make sense of the conflicting stories, really, on this year's round of gerrymanders following the 2020 census, both the partisan and racial gerrymanders, and whether both the Voting Rights Act and American democracy itself is going to survive them. The news was actually good for the American democracy part, at least until Monday's horrific ruling from the Republicans' stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court. Dan Vicuña of Common Cause joins us next to help us try to pull it all together. Somehow, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yeah, we'll get to Alabama in a moment. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. According to a number of experts in these things, the new redistricting situation across the nation following the 2020 census has not, at least to date, been nearly as bad for Democrats, as many of those same experts had predicted in advance of the newly drawn maps, at least when it comes to new maps for the U.S. House. That is not, of course, because Republican-controlled legislatures who draw many of the maps decided to be nice this year, but rather their gerrymanders after the 20, uh, 2010 census were so outrageously unbalanced to offer an advantage to Republicans, it's actually become difficult to make those maps much worse. At the same time, over the past decade, since the last round of redistricting, a number of states which saw their maps drawn by partisan GOP state legislatures are now seeing maps drawn by independent redistricting commissions after voters in several states overwhelmingly adopted new provisions for drawing maps to make them more competitive. With the new state constitutional requirements that the maps better reflect the partisan leanings of those states overall. For instance, as we've been reporting, the GOP majority state Supreme Court in Ohio has ruled that the GOP majority drawn uh, GOP majority redistricting committee in the Buckeye state drew up maps that disproportionately and unlawfully benefited Republicans despite the state's closely divided partisan leanings. And the uh, again, the Republican-majority state Supreme Court has now ordered new maps to be drawn, or the court made clear they would have them drawn up themselves. Redrawn maps, experts now seem to believe, could result in a pickup of at least three Democratic U.S. House seats in Ohio for the state's voters, as compared to the deeply partisan gerrymandered maps that have been in use there over the past decade. In North Carolina, 
late last week. The state's Supreme Court there upended Republican efforts to lock in political dominance in the state, saying, just as Ohio's Supreme Court has done, that the congressional and state legislative maps were partisan gerrymanders that violated that state's constitution. The ruling requires the Republican-controlled legislature not only to submit new maps to the court, but to offer a range of statistical analyses to show, quote, a significant likelihood that the districting plan will give the voters of all political parties substantially equal opportunity to translate votes into seats in elections. Democrats and nonpartisan redistricting advocates have had a great deal of success in state courts this year as well in pushing back on partisan redistricting schemes. At the same time, some democratically controlled states like Illinois and New York have been able to add new Democratic-leaning districts, leading Republicans to pretend to be simply outraged about what they see as partisan gerrymandering in those states, though it should be noted that all Republicans in the uh, U.S. House and Senate actually voted against provisions that would have banned gerrymand partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states. In the Republicans' 67-page complaint filed in state court in New York last Thursday, the petitioners there argued that, quote, Democratic Party politicians who control the New York legislature and governor's office brazenly enacted a congressional map that is undeniably politically gerrymandered in their party's favor, despite a 2014 constitutional amendment that was approved by voters. As it should be, the case will be decided in court. In this case and all of these other partisan gerrymandering cases, in state court, because back in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that federal courts could take no part in adjudicating partisan gerrymanders. That, however, still left federal courts to be able to adjudicate racial gerrymandering under the Landmark Voting Rights Act. And they did so recently in Alabama, where a three-judge federal appeals court panel with not one but two Trump-appointed judges on that panel held a full, days-long hearing with more than a dozen witnesses finding that, in fact, Alabama's new GOP-drawn maps violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that uh, federal court panel ordered that the state's uh, seven U.S. House districts, which had featured six white Republicans and one black Democrat over the past decade, be redrawn to allow for not one, but two black majority House districts, given that black voters now comprise some 27 percent of the state's voters. In their unanimous ruling in late January, those three judges said that the groups challenging Alabama's maps were likely to succeed in showing that the state had, in fact, violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That's the one which has not yet been fully gutted by the Supreme Court. And as a result, the panel ordered lawmakers to redraw the districts so black voters would be a majority or close to it in two districts, not just one. They issued a nearly 250-page ruling, noting that, quote, we do not regard the question as a close one. That very likely would have resulted in another Democratic House member from Alabama to more closely reflect the partisan leanings of the state. Overall, 
Cook Political Political Reports' David Wasserman, widely regarded as one of the nation's top experts on this sort of thing, tweeted out last week, quote, for the first time, Democrats have taken the lead on the Cook Political Reports' 2022 redistricting scorecard after favorable developments in New York and Alabama and Pennsylvania and elsewhere. They are on track, he said, to net two to three seats from new maps versus old ones. That's right. Incredibly enough, after all of the worries from Democrats and democracy advocates about the new redistricting cycle and how it could be a bloodbath for Democrats over the next decade, with the GOP controlling so many state legislatures and the Supreme Court declaring partisan gerrymanders were none of the federal court's business, Democrats, at least as of last week, were on track to possibly actually pick up partisan House districts overall. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to win those districts, not in an off-year election with a Democrat in the White House that could go heavily uh, toward the out-of-power party in November. But more districts appear to be flipping red to blue in the new maps than blue to red overall, even as Republicans are said to be shoring up previously competitive seats in their own favor on these new maps. Well, late on Monday, however, just before airtime for us, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a disturbing decision, at least disturbing to me, on their so-called shadow docket, where they issue often unsigned emergency decisions without the benefit of actually hearing oral argument, etc. In a five to four ruling with Justice uh, Chief Justice John Roberts joining all three of the court's Democratic appointees, the Supremes blocked that unanimous ruling from the federal court's three-judge panel in Alabama. Remember, two of the judges were even Trump appointees who said it was not even a close question. With the five Republican justices on the Supreme Court, on the packed and stolen Supreme Court, claiming that it was just too late in the election cycle for a change to be made to Alabama's maps. They'd have to use the ones that were drawn by Republicans, even though they were found to almost certainly violate the Voting Rights Act, but that the court would hear the case in any event later in the year, at some point, though obviously not in time to have these new maps drawn up to reflect the actual voters of the state of Alabama before the 2022 midterm elections. On its own, that is troubling enough. In her blistering dissent, Justice Elena Kagan called the ruling, quote, one more in a disconcerting, disconcertingly long line of cases in which the court uses its shadow docket to signal or make changes in the law without anything approaching full briefing and argument. But the use of the shadow docket to undermine voting rights as the same court has recently used to undermine abortion rights and others, is only one of the problems here. As Kagan noted, the justices will now, at some later date, decide whether the map produced by Alabama violates the landmark voting rights law in a case that would now call into question, quote, decades of this court's precedent about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Beyond all of the partisan politics here teeing up the potential destruction of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, just as the court did to Section 5 of that act back in 2013, that is perhaps the most disturbing outcome of the high court's shadow docket ruling on Monday. 
Joining us now to try at least to make sense of all of these things today is longtime redistricting and gerrymandering expert Dan Vicuña, the national redistricting manager at Common Cause. Dan Vicuña, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the broadcast. It has been a while, sir. It has been. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, quite a bit to get to here, Dan, as you could tell. I was trying to summarize a lot of information in that intro. Did anything jump out? Did I either miss any key points in, in the overall explanation uh, or get anything wrong as you see it, leave anything out, and how the various state redistricting maps are uh, sort of shaking out this year on the partisan redistricting front? We'll get to the racial gerrymandering and the Supreme Court in a moment. Did, did we generally get it right? Did I miss any key points? Yeah, I think you did get it right. I mean, uh, what you see is a, a lot going on and a reminder that our activism in the states, both for through ballot initiatives and legislative lobbying, kind of grassroots efforts, it, wa it was important to do um, because we could not put our eggs all in the federal court basket. So right. I, I think you kind of summed it up nicely. There's There's been some differing opinions, however, among uh, experts like yourself, redistricting experts this year, as to the idea that you know, oh, things are not as bad as they could have been for Democrats this year. For example, Michael Lee from uh, Brennan Center, he warns that the hard, just the simple hard numbers of, uh, you know, red districts, blue districts, et cetera, that that sort of obscures the fact that Republicans have shored up a bunch of competitive seats in their own favor. They didn't, you know, flip a district from blue to red, per se, but they made it harder to lose to lose currently red seats during a blue wave election, for example. How, how do you see things overall, again, taking out the Supreme Court for the moment, but how do you think, uh, how do you see things overall for uh, shaking out for uh, both Dems and Republicans this year? Yeah, I mean, how, how things are going to shake out in terms of uh, partisanship, I, I think uh, it stands to reason that Republicans, uh, you know, were, were able to shore up more of their own districts to, mm -hmm. to make a sort of safer playing field for themselves because simply they're in control of more state governments. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the legislators in most of the country right, draw their own districts, something mm -hmm. we oppose, and we've fought for reforms to change that in most of the country. But Republicans certainly have the upper hand in terms of having, you know, entire control of the government, the governorship, uh, both uh, houses of the state legislature. So I think that certainly works in their favor, and, you know, you see them taking advantage of that, where that's the case, much like uh, in places like Illinois, uh, Maryland, New York, where, mm -hmm. where Democrats have that kind of control. Now, there are still a number of states, I, I think Florida being one of the, the largest, that have yet to come in with their new maps for, uh, for this year, for this decade. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, we still there, there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, certainly there are a lot of states that worked very quickly um, and finished up maps, but um, mm -hmm. there are other places where you're, the process is still um, ongoing. You know, one where, of course, Florida, we're watching because that's a place where in 2010 there was bipartisan overwhelming support for a constitutional amendment banning um, partisan gerrymandering mm -hmm. um, and racial gerrymandering, kind of reaffirming the ban on racial gerrymandering. A place like Pennsylvania, where in 2018 the, the state Supreme Court threw out uh, the state's congressional districts and ruled that state constitution um, banned partisan gerrymandering as well through their free elections clause. So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely a lot of places where the process continues. And, and as you mentioned, in Ohio, where mm -hmm. uh, the, the court sent maps back, they said you didn't follow the law that the voters uh, overwhelmingly backed to, um, to prohibit giving one party a big advantage in the process. So um, a lot to be done. 
So, which sort of begs the question, if, you know, states like Florida have not come in entirely with their maps, other states, North Carolina, Ohio, etc., are uh, in court battles with the state courts sending it back to, uh, you know, to, to redraw those maps. I mean, if some states haven't even come up with their maps, how is it that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, can decide that it is too late in the 2022 election cycle to draw new ones that were found to violate the Voting Rights Act in states like Alabama. And does that mean that any other maps that make their way to the U.S. Supreme Court at this point are are going to be uh, blocked under that same so-called Purcell principle? Yeah, I mean, that approach is uh, it goes against the court's very own precedent, which Justice Kagan lays out in her dissent, where she talks about um, you know, at least a couple of states in the last cycle, even, I mean, that's no more than four or five years ago, where the court said, uh, look, we, this is a constitutional violation, and that really trumps all else. Um, you know, we can adjust primaries, or we, we can get things readjusted in terms of election schedules, but what's important here is to strike down a map that violates the constitutional rights of the people in that state. Um, and they've done it on a on a shorter timeline before in other states. So there's mm-hmm. not, you know, that argument that it's just kind of too late in the cycle, so therefore we should let an unconstitutional map go forward. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I just don't understand how, if the case is that some states have not even come up with their maps at all, how it can be... Uh, you know, too late to do it in Alabama. I think their election, their primary elections come up in like uh, two months or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. But in other states, haven't they simply put off the primaries when they have needed to do so in order to get fair maps before we start voting? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly happened before, uh, you know, North Carolina, for example, a few years ago. Um, you know, there's there's definite precedent for figuring out a way to kind of just slightly tweak the schedule if need be. Um, and I think Alabama, there is plenty of time. It's, it's you know, there's not really a lot of tweaking of the schedule. Maybe I don't even think there's even a need to necessarily push the primary back. Um, but, uh, but regardless, I think even if that is the case where you need to push back primary dates a little bit, I, you know, I don't know that there um, are a ton of sort of constituents in the state, especially those who are being discriminated against in a map, that are going to be sort of concerned about a particular exact primary date, like they sort of had it circled on the calendar, right. and would say, well, go ahead and violate my constitutional rights because I am really committed to this particular <laughs> primary date. Um, right. You know, it, it's hugely problematic. So uh, so what, then what is, you know, I guess your what's your sort of top-line reaction? Why is, what what is this about? What did what the Supreme Court did on Monday in their 5-4 to four ruling, undercutting the three-judge panel in Alabama after their days-long hearing? Uh, you know, more than a dozen experts testifying, examinations of reams of data. What is actually going on with the U.S. Supreme Court as you see it, Dan Bacuna, in that case? I think that there is, within the conservative majority on that court, deep skepticism about the Voting Rights Act, which is one of the most effective pieces of legislation to turn back uh, to fight back against our sordid history of racism. It's been Mm -hmm. incredibly effective in giving people of color the opportunity to make their voices heard in elections, and I just think the conservative majority, at least some of them, just don't like it very much. You know, uh, the Alabama defendants in this case gave a very strange defense. They they, uh, They kind of tried to contort the law, add a new requirement that made it even more difficult to create districts in which communities of color can make their voices heard. And it seems like 
there the, you know the five justice um, you know right wing majority thinks that it has at least enough merit to shut down um, having a constitutional map this cycle and you know so at least that's that's my fear so uh, you know whether whether that bears out in oral arguments we'll see well i share your fear because you know in 2013 in the the Selma case, the the U.S. Supreme Court essentially gutted the part of the Voting Rights Act, Section Five, that would have blocked, you know, election laws and and redistricting in, in states with a history of racial discrimination at the ballot box in advance before they could be used to disproportionately harm minority voters. And they claimed at the time in 2013 uh, and ever since that, oh, sure, we may have gutted Section Five. Uh, for pre-clearance of these laws, but we still have Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars the same discrimination, even if it's only after the law is put into effect. And uh, But, you know, legal and, and voting rights experts uh, that I've been reading are very concerned that Monday's decision by the high court to hear this Alabama case is now teeing up the court to also kill Section 2 that they claimed, oh, that's still there. Do you share that concern that they are specifically targeting now Section 2? And the fact that Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote that decision, that gutted Section 5 back in 2013, uh, he voted with the court's uh, liberals here. Um, do you suppose that's why he voted against uh, uh, staying the Alabama ruling here? Because he knew he sort of promised that there would still be uh, Section 2 available? Yeah, I mean, it's possible, although he did describe in his decision, you know, some concerns with the way Section 2 was laid out. I mean, his view was that the Alabama court, it, you know, it adhered to the law correctly as it exists now, but he did state, you know, it's, uh, in a few sentences that maybe that needs to be reexamined. I mean, you know, what's really troubling is that, you know, Section 4, which was, which the court struck down, mm-hmm. thus gutting the, the Section 5 kind of pre-clearance mm-hmm. uh, regime, um, you know, really, you know, has a philosophy of kind of, you know, looking ahead at, you know, st- uh, jurisdictions that are likely to be problematic and making them, uh, pre-clear their voting maps, their, any voting changes they make. Um, we, it's, it's the view of, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Committee and good government groups that that the equation that identified those jurisdictions, that worked for really well and mm-hmm. actually did identify correctly those that were bad actors. Section 2, uh, even if you have some concern about the way Section, you know, the, the, what was struck down already kind of, you know, mm-hmm. pre, you know maybe accuses in advance uh, some jurisdictions for you looks at them skeptically about what they may do in terms of voting section two doesn't do that it really you know it, it's only a, a specific discriminatory act that gets challenged in court mm-hmm. um you know is what plaintiffs can take on and challenge um and so you know that really doesn't have the same concerns and you know in terms of sort of uh maybe accusing a jurisdiction before it acts this is really about a bad action mm-hmm. that discriminates and so the idea that that too can also be gutted uh, is very, very troubling. You know, we're hoping that there's kind of enough difference in the philosophy between the two sections that the Supreme Court won't go all the way and gut it. But of course, uh, with the South Alabama decision, you know, we're we're concerned. Yeah, and for good reason. I mean, what w- would the argument here be that uh, Section Two, you know, which bars uh, racially discriminatory laws, that well, it's with I mean, without Section 2, are we saying, oh, it's fine to racially discriminate at the polling place? I mean, what, what else do you got if you don't have uh, Section 2 anymore at the federal level? Yeah, and, and I think that's why, you know, even sort of this kind of hyper-conservative majority, I guess, if you remove Roberts from the 
uh, from the equation. Uh, you know, I, are they likely to sort of strike it down the whole cloth? Uh, probably not. I think they understand that, that would uh, create a huge problem for in terms of public perception of the court. But what is at risk is a kind of shaving away, um, and that's what I think we're we're potentially looking at um, in this Alabama case. If you you know sort of add some what on paper looked mm-hmm. like slight, just only slightly more difficult requirements for creating majority minority districts, but say you know that you have technically kept Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act alive, I mean, that, you know, that can be hugely problematic because you're still doing the same kind of damage to our, our civil rights um, laws uh, permanently um, without saying you're doing it sort of a, in a dishonest way. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's what we're going to be looking for in this case. I, I think it's terrifying. I mean, the fact that you got two Trump-appointed judges who looked at this in detail for days, you know, heard from witnesses and everything else and agreed, yeah, it's not even a close question. What they're doing in Alabama is a violation of, uh, you know, the bar on racial gerrymandering in uh, in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and yet the Supreme Court is blocking that. In the meantime, Dan, there's uh, an outstanding federal case, again, in Texas, filed by the Department of Justice under uh, Section 2 as well of the Voting Rights Act, as I understand it, charging unlawful racial gerrymandering in that state as the GOP-controlled Texas legislature is adding two new House seats this year, thanks to the 2020 census, uh, and thanks almost entirely to the growth in the state's black and Hispanic minority voter population. Nonetheless, the Texas Republicans are actually adding two new white majority House districts and removing minority uh, uh, House districts in the bargain. So the Department of Justice is suing. Should we now expect to see a very similar result to any federal challenge to the Texas racial gerrymanders under the same thing that has just uh, blocked the the change in Alabama now? Well, in terms of kind of the technical timing of things, you know, I don't think the parties in Texas have asked for an injunction to stop districts from going into a, uh, into effect this cycle. I, just, I don't know that they, uh, you know, just thought that was strategically the approach, but. Uh, but in terms of what the court uh, you know, down the road does once it hears oral argument mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of possibly put some parts of Section 2 on the chopping block um, when you have kind of a full adjudication of the Texas districts, which are, you know, clearly discriminatory mm-hmm. um, against black, Latino, and Asian Texans, you know, that uh, the, the rules of the road when Texas gets to the court could be entirely different, uh, which, which risks giving it a rubber stamp to another state's uh, discriminatory map. So... Um, you know, we, we happen to be one of the parties in that case, and so mm-hmm. we're watching that closely, too. You know, I've I've spoken to a, a, a number of redistricting experts about all of this in recent months, but given what I regard Dan Vicuña as a very, very real threat to American democracy itself, uh, if Democrats are unable to hang on to at least one chamber of Congress when we get to the next presidential election in uh, 2024, uh, given that, I've actually changed my, I've talked about it on air, I've changed my previous position now to actually be in favor of states that are controlled by Democrats actually using partisan gerrymanders to help more Dems get elected to balance the clearly outrageous gerrymanders gerrymanders that we've seen in states like Texas. And so I want to give you a chance, you know, like those other experts, 
do you tend to disagree with my assessment that Dems should, in fact, gerrymander where they can, whether it's New York and Illinois? And, hey, Republicans can challenge in state courts just as Democrats are doing elsewhere, but that they should do that not to help Democrats or the Democratic Party, but to try and help save American democracy itself. I've changed my position on that. I don't like that I have had to. I hate it, in fact. But I'm I'm wondering if you would like to tell me that I'm wrong, like some of the other experts have as well. Well, I, I you know, I, I guess for starters, I'll lay out the common cause of nonpartisan organization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, the, the, I think there, there's an important principle, which is that it's just it's morally wrong and it's wrong for democracy to manipulate districts. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. We, um, it, it's the Republican Party has gone to a very troubling place in its sort of march behind uh, former President Trump. Um, but we, we mainly take the view that it's wrong, uh, whoever does it. But there's a very easy solution to this for Republicans who are offended by Democratic gerrymanders in New York and mm-hmm. Illinois, Maryland, uh, which is to support the John Lewis, uh, you know, the uh, Voting Rights Act, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Freedom to Vote Act, you know, to ensure voting rights for Democrats in red states and Republicans in blue states, uh, and to ban partisan gerrymandering everywhere. And so we hope that they will. Uh, learn that lesson um, and get on board. Uh, you know, I kind of had a laugh when I when I see the uh, uh, the Republicans up in New York who are just outraged about the fact that Democrats there are flipping potentially, you know, flipping three red seats to blue seats. If they are so outraged about it, you know, there's nothing that stops. I suspect the Democrats would be delighted to jump on board. There's nothing to stop Republicans in Congress from peeling off the uh, the part of the Freedom to Vote Act that that bars uh, partisan redistricting in all 50 states. They could peel that off, create just a standalone law that bars partisan redistricting everywhere. And I'm sure they would have no problem getting that passed through the uh, through the Senate, if the Republicans decided to come on board, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be a very, very straightforward way to do it. I mean, although you know, in our in our perfect world, we like to see um, alternative bodies doing this. We don't think legislators should touch it at all. Um, one, an alternative to that gold standard is to just have the ban. You know, to say mm-hmm. that partisan gerrymandering violates the law and that right. empowers plaintiffs to go to court and challenge maps. Uh, on the back end, mm-hmm. and um, hopefully provides a little bit of a threat on the front end for those drawing districts. So, yeah, it would be it would be great to see. Yeah, it's it's a little hard to stomach when they are so when the Republicans are so outraged about it, and they could simply pass a law. They would have every Democrat in the Senate on their side. One simple law saying that partisan gerrymanders are unlawful and we could be done with this nightmare, at least that part of it, if not the racial uh, gerrymandering nightmare. Dan Vicuña, National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause. Thanks for helping us to try to make sense out of uh, this fine mess this year. You can get more information on what they do on these matters at commoncause.org slash redistricting. And you can find uh, Dan on the Twitters at Dan Vicuña, V-I-C-U-N-A. Dan, always great speaking with you, my friend. I suspect we're going to be doing it uh, more frequently in the near future, given everything that's going on. That sounds about right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dan. I will tell you, Desi Doyen, yes. that we've had a number of uh, you know redistricting, gerrymandering experts on uh, in recent months. Yes. Uh, and uh, many of them are nonpartisan, like uh, Dan there, um, or they represent nonpartisan groups or whatever. But you can tell. 
you can tell they they sort of agree with me when I say, <laughs> hey, shouldn't democratically controlled states do the same thing that Republicans are doing right now since Republicans are not stopping doing that d- doing that and American democracy itself hangs in the balance? You can tell they kind of want to say yes. Yeah, it's that eternal struggle between folks who, who want to do the right thing, who know what the moral and right thing is, and yet see being taken advantage of by bad faith Republicans who are trying to dismantle voting rights wherever they possibly can to stay in power. I'll tell you, when we opened the phones about that question a few uh, a month or two ago, I think every caller said, yes, Democrats should absolutely do that. And they're not necessarily Democratic listeners. If you've listened to our show when we open up the the phones, you know, they're not all necessarily Democrats. Um, But it's just so blatant and it's just so obvious. And the fact that the Supreme Court now is just cutting down one. Mowing them down. uh, Yeah. Longstanding right after another after another. This is brutal what is going on. And I just hope people are paying attention and they're not falling for the, you know, uh, the media's, oh, both sides are... uh, They're all the same. They're all the same. This is not true. Only one side is fighting for democracy and voting rights. The other side is fighting to dismantle them. Yes, uh, and dismantle American democracy itself. I can't say it enough, but I will try to. (laughs) Quick break, and we're back with Desiree and her latest Green News report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. And by the way, it's not just American (laughs) democracy that is at stake. You know, people are used to listening to talk radio. They think, oh, I'm going to listen to some partisan talk about Republicans or talk about Democrats or whatever. We don't talk about these aren't partisan issues. These are existential issues. This is survival of American democracy and, yes, survival of humanity when it comes to our climate emergency. Yes. So I know. Let's get to it. Our (laughs) latest Green Green News News Report. (laughs) If Russia invades, uh, then uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. President Biden vows controversial Russian pipeline won't go forward if they invade Ukraine. The authorities declared a state of national disaster after fields and rivers were inundated by floodwaters. Madagascar reels from second deadly cyclone in two weeks. Plus, bad news and good as new satellite data catches methane super emitters. That sounds mostly bad. All of those bad and good news stories straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You take the United States of America out of the fossil industry right now, I guarantee you the world will get, the climate will get more more challenged and dirtier. Oh, okay, great. Thanks, Joe Manchin. So we should just stick with your family's million-dollar coal business? Got it. That'll make the climate cleaner. This is your 
Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Germany entered into a deal with Russia some time ago to get a whole bunch of energy from them. And now that may be causing problems? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, geopolitical tensions are rising, and so are oil prices along with it. In a joint press conference at the White House on Monday, President Biden and new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz issued a coordinated warning to Russia, vowing swift sanctions if President Putin launches a new invasion of Ukraine. Biden said that the controversial Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany won't go forward. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. However, Chancellor Schultz would not explicitly commit to halting operations of the Nord Stream 2. Overall, the escalating conflict plus tight oil and gas supplies globally have both driven oil and natural gas prices up more than 20 percent over the last six weeks. Mm, funny how that happens. In other news, at least 20 people were killed and more than 55,000 displaced in Madagascar over the weekend after the second deadly cyclone in two weeks pummeled the impoverished island nation, intensifying an ongoing humanitarian crisis. Torrential rainfall from Cyclone Batsarai triggered flash floods in the island's agricultural heartland, sweeping away entire villages. The United Nations warns Madagascar is on the brink of the world's first climate change famine directly caused by man-made global warming due to years of unrelenting drought. Who could have predicted it? The world's rapidly shrinking glaciers have less ice than previously thought, according to a new study in Nature Geoscience, with major implications for drinking water supplies. Glaciers around the world are rapidly melting due to man-made global warming. Less glacial mass to melt means glaciers could contribute less to sea level rise than previously thought. However, it also means freshwater supplies could decline sooner than expected for the millions of people worldwide who depend on glacial melt for their drinking water, crop irrigation, and everyday use. Is that the good news, bad news thing you were talking about? No, that's next. Uh Meanwhile, a growing number of satellites are now able to detect so-called super emitters of climate warming methane around the planet. The bad news is that the satellite data revealed, for example, that oil and gas facilities in West Texas released 1,800 huge bursts of methane in just three years. Well, that's just them keeping the climate clean, as Joe Manchin might say. It's the climate pollution equivalent of half a million cars a year. However, a new study in the journal Science suggests that data can help governments prioritize enforcement efforts. The researchers found that cracking down on just methane super emitters would be a low-cost, high-impact way that countries and fossil fuel companies could make immediate cuts to methane pollution. That would help slow down near-term global warming, buying us time to cut longer-lasting carbon emissions. Some good-ish news. Japanese carmaker Nissan announced that it will end development of new internal combustion engines in all of its major markets to focus all of its resources on shifting to electric vehicles. Cool. Except in the U.S. Nissan says limited (laughs) development will continue on gasoline engines for the U.S. market, mainly those used for pickup trucks, where it projects demand for gas-powered trucks will persist. Because America loves its gas.
And finally, Chinese electric vehicle battery maker BYD has introduced its U.S. version of an electric school bus that utilizes what's called vehicle-to-grid technology. When the bus is not transporting school children, it can serve as a big yellow storage battery for the electric grid. Very nice. Why don't we ever get to do good stuff like that? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Every new school bus in this country should be an electric bus at this point. Absolutely. Save on money, save on energy, and save on children's lungs. And it reminds me of the story that we covered last week that I got so furious about that I'm hoping we're going to cover more this week. The fact that uh, Louis DeJoy over at the post office is uh, buying 165,000 new uh, U.S. postal mail delivery trucks, and all but 10% of them are going to be gas gasoline-powered trucks. That cannot stand. It cannot stand. It is madness. And yes, we're going to do something about it. How? I don't know. (laughs) Haven't worked that out yet, but we're working (laughs) on it. Hopefully we'll talk more about it this week with someone who knows. All right, we have to get out. Desi Doyen is our producer. Thank you very much, Des. Uh, My thanks also to my guest today, Dan Vicuña of Common Cause, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program. Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, a service which is made possible by listeners like you who are the only ones who keep us on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate if you haven't done so lately or even if you have. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Now I got my magic bus. Magic bus. Magic bus.